For our scripture reading this evening, please turn in your Bibles at home to 2 Kings chapter 4. Um, over the last few weeks, we've had an opportunity to look at a few of um, the Elisha narratives, uh, some of the important miraculous works that the Lord uh, brought about through His servant Elisha, and we are turning to one of the first of these uh, events here in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha and the widow's oil. So please turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 4. I'd like to read the first seven verses there of that passage. This is God's holy word. Let's listen attentively to it as it is for our instruction and growth in righteousness. We read here, now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. And here we end the reading of God's holy word. Well, saints of God, as we often turn to passages like these, these, these Old Testament narratives, sometimes we are left scratching our heads. We read this very short uh, passage that's very scant on details. We find individuals here who we've never met before, we never see again on the pages of Scripture. And we wonder, what should I do with this passage? What is the practical application that I'm to draw from a passage like this? Again, this is a passage that's very short and scant on details. Uh, the the uh, the characters here are rather anonymous. We never find them again on the pages of Scripture, and so it's easy to overlook a passage like this on the pages of Scripture. We wonder, what practical lesson should I glean from this? It's not surprising that uh, some types of Christian teachers have played fast and loose with passages like these. Uh, some have tried to moralize this passage to teach us that our, uh, what we receive from the Lord is only as good, only as bountiful as the faith that we put into the relationship, a sort of a, uh, a faith-to-get-stuff type of relationship. Others have spiritualized this account. Uh, popular TV evangelist T.D. Jakes uh, looks at the oil here in this account and says, well, that can't just be regular oil. That must be the flow of the Spirit in the life of those who are suffering or who are troubled. But as I've said before, in order to understand passages like this properly, in order to get benefit from passages like this, we need to read them and interpret them properly. 
And so often we approach passages like this with a what's-in-it-for-me mentality. And that's not the best question to begin with. The best question to begin with is, what does this passage teach me about my God? What does it teach me about His character? What does it teach me about His goodness? And when we begin with that question, then a passage like this yields some very meaningful uh, things for us. We see that this passage begins a list of events in Elisha's ministry that demonstrate our covenant God's power over the problems in His broken creation, be they large problems or small problems. Uh, We see in this passage that uh, God's needy people, you and I, matter to Him. A passage like this, we will see, teaches us that the one true God, the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, is still the God who cares for the most needy and anonymous among His people. We have here a beautiful display of God's compassion and His provision that He gives to those who are needy, those who have exhausted their resources, those who are at wit's end, who are running on empty. And if that's you tonight, notice also that this passage is here to teach us that we have a great need for a Redeemer, and that Redeemer who buys us back from our sinful condition has been met in Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a few things tonight. First of all, we're going to assess the widow's plea. Secondly, we're going to notice the Lord's provision. And then finally, uh, the redeeming promise. First, the widow's plea. If we're to understand the significance of this miracle of Elisha, we really need to try to grasp the widow's situation and see that it is a situation of great distress, great trouble and desperation. We are told very little about the woman, but what we know uh, concerns us. We hear that she is a widow. And of course, uh, in Old Testament uh, times, uh, a widow was a picture of the greatest amount of loss and emptiness. One of the most vulnerable members of society were the widows in Israel. But if that's not bad enough, we find out that she is a borrower and that her creditor is coming to take her sons as slaves. She's not just a borrower. She cannot pay back her creditor. The sons, which will eventually grow up and become her life support, are going to be taken away in order to pay her debts. We could hardly imagine somebody who is more destitute, more troubled in her circumstances. And we might pause and wonder, why is she in this situation? Why is her situation so desperate after all? Remember, of course, that there was no such thing as a social security system in Israel, so people often did fall into debt. But there were kinsmen redeemers. Oftentimes, people or property that ended up in the hands of creditors could be bought back. They could be redeemed by a family member, by a brother of the husband, for example. It was the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer of each Israelite family to redeem those in the family who were in debt, who were in trouble. In Leviticus 25, the Lord lays out His plans for the kinsman redeemer to care for those who are particularly needy in society. Remember from Ruth chapter 4, Boaz was the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. 
And yet this widow doesn't appear to have that kind of assistance. She doesn't appear to have a kinsman redeemer to help her. And yet there's other reasons why this woman is in such a destitute state. And it has something to do with the sin of the people of Israel. The Israelite community is very likely at fault for allowing this widow's situation to become so desperate. Remember, brothers and sisters, that the Lord had revealed Himself to Israel as the defender of the weak and the widow of the fatherless. And because that's the kind of God He is, He also requires the same acts of justice from His own people. He required Israel to act justly, to act generously with widows, making sure they didn't fall out of the the social care network of sorts. In Deuteronomy 24, we have the Lord's command to Israel that they should not allow the weakest and the most vulnerable in society to live in a destitute state. They should be cared for generously and lovingly. And so the fact that this widow, a wife of one of the prophets of Israel, should find herself in such a terrible situation reveals to us how tragic the circumstances are in Israel right now, just how much justice and righteousness was being perverted. It proves to us, this is another indicator, that the Word of God was not highly regarded in Israel at this time. And so we notice the desperation in her plea to Elisha. And yet, we also see a measure of aggravation here. She says to Elisha, your servant, my husband, that son of one of the prophets, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my children to be slaves. Her husband had been a man of God, one of the sons of the prophets. He was a voice of truth, a voice of righteousness amidst the rampant idolatry in Israel. Her husband had supported and believed and and proclaimed the Word of God when that could have cost him his life at the hands of wicked King Ahab and wicked Queen Jezebel. This widow's husband had been one of the few in Israel who responded with an uncompromising no to the idolatrous culture of his day. He chose to remain a follower of the covenant God of Israel, of Yahweh Himself. But now he's gone, and it appears that not even his faithfulness to God could prevent his wife and his sons from falling into desperate poverty. There's a measure of aggravation there. We can possibly relate to the desperation and even the aggravation in her plea. Perhaps you watch as a a dear friend or a relative, a loved one, who's known for their godliness, known for their selfless love for Christ and His church, and yet they, they fall prey to reoccurring cancer. Perhaps you pray earnestly for work in a a struggling economy. Meanwhile, you serve your faith, your, your, your family well, you serve faithfully in the church, and yet you wait and you wait and you wait. Your minister serves the Lord, his lifelong faithfully expounding the Word of God, and yet 
He faces a retirement in which he will be fighting an incurable disease. We, we relate very closely to the aggravation, the trouble in the widow's plea. He was a man of God, Elisha. He was faithful. And yet the debt collector is still coming to take my boys. The widow here faces the mysterious providence of God, as we all do. And he wonders, she wonders if the Lord has any plans to meet her needs. And yet you notice, brothers and sisters, that this nameless widow's cry of desperation is also laced with faith. She doesn't despair to the point of cursing God. She doesn't take matters into her own hands. We read, she cried to Elisha, the man of God, the mouthpiece of God in Israel. She casts her cares upon God through His servant, the prophet. She's in trouble, to be sure, but she believes. And it's on account of her faith that Elisha eagerly comes to her aid, and he simply asks her this. In the first part of chapter, verse 2, Elisha says to her, what shall I do for you? What shall I do for you? You see the marvelous provision that this anonymous widow on the pages of Scripture is given. She is given by God's grace immediate access to Him to receive His help. She may not have a high social status. She may not have the benefits of a social security system. She may not have a direct relative, a kinsman redeemer to help her. But by faith, she has access to the one true God who alone is able to meet her needs. And that is a comfort for us as well, dear saints of God. In the midst of the, uh, the mysterious providence of God as it unfolds in our lives, as we find ourselves sometimes troubled by that providence, aggravated, and it seems that our faithfulness to the Lord does not result in immediate blessing, we can cast our cares directly upon our God through Jesus Christ. And the promise of His Word is that He will hear us and He will answer us for Jesus' sake. But in the absence, we see secondly, in the absence of a kinsman redeemer to meet her need, God steps in. God steps in. He Himself becomes her provider through the prophet Elisha. And in what follows here in this narrative, we learn some wonderful things, some beautiful things about God as our provider, about the ways that He typically reveals Himself to be our provider. First, Look where God begins. Look where He begins. Verse 2, once again, Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? And then he asks, tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. We read a lot about oil in the Bible. In fact, no less than 200 times we find oil mentioned in the pages of Scripture, and that's because it was really a staple of ancient Near Eastern life. It had a whole variety of uses, uh, ranging from the, the common, the ordinary, uh, to the sacred, the, the spiritual. Uh, oil was used in preparing food. It was used to make cosmetics. It was used as fuel for lamps and uh, for medicine. It was used in the sacrifices and in anointing, in worship. And what's, what's significant in this is that the widow here is in such dire straits 
that she has only the smallest portion of the most basic commodity of everyday life. We could say she, she had only just a small jar of, of flour left. Um, just one jar of oil, that's all she had left. And what are we to gain from this? What are we to glean from this? What are we to understand? The widow's response to Elisha when he asked, what do you have on hand, communicates her utter lack of resources. It's not the case, as some teachers might try to convince you to believe, that the widow just needed to be shown that her circumstances were better off than she first thought. Um, Elisha's question to her, what do you have in the house, is not a cue that he's about to break out into a pep talk, how to make the most out of the little that you have, so that the widow would respond, oh, that's right, I forgot. I have that little jar of oil left. I guess my resources are greater than I thought. I can do this. No, that's not the, the message here. That may be the message of the prosperity gospel positive thinking crew, but that's not the point here. The widow has no clue why Elisha wanted to know the status of her oil supply. Her response is to show us just how utterly destitute she is, how utterly lacking she is in supplies, how utterly incapable she is of improving her own situation. This is not about her. This is about how God typically shows His power in providing for His people because that's where God typically begins. That's where God typically begins in our lives. God begins with the very item that symbolizes our helpfulness, our helplessness rather, our lack of resources, our want, our need. He begins with those things and He makes that the means of His help, of His providence. We think of Jesus uh, speaking to the 5,000 men in Mark 6, and he asks his disciples, how many loaves do you have? We're going to feed these people. And no doubt a question that agitated the disciples, perhaps even embarrassed them, because the supply was obviously insufficient to feed so many, and yet it was in that lack, in that dearth of, of internal resources that Jesus was to show His divine power, to provide their basic needs by working through only five loaves and two fish. That's what God does for us, brothers and sisters. He begins with next to nothing. When we're running on empty, or at the end of our rope, no resources left, He begins there in order to demonstrate His surpassing power and greatness in our lives. And you see that Elisha gives the widow some bewildering directions. He says in verses 3 through 4, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. Interesting, odd perhaps, that Elisha would call the widow to do something that would put her destitution, her utter lack of resources, out there for everyone to see. She would go from neighbor to neighbor to ask for vessels to fill with the very thing that she had none of, nothing of. How embarrassing that might have been. We hesitate to go next door and borrow a cup of sugar or flour if we run out in the midst of a meal. 
How embarrassing to go to the neighbors who no doubt wondered after she left, why does she need all of these vessels? We know she doesn't have anything to put in them. You see, God is calling the widow to act in faith. When there was no oil to be found, she was to make preparations for a great abundance of oil. And that's what she does. She follows Elisha's bewildering instructions to the T. Not once here in the passage do we have any indication that she doubted. Not once do we have any indication that she hesitated or complained. No, she trusted the Word of God. She believed Elisha's instructions, even though to do so would publicize her her lack, her want to all of her neighbors. But in faith she acted, and then the miracle took place. Verse 5 and 6, so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. Our passage is limited on details, but you can just imagine the mounting excitement in the room. As God provides for this destitute woman so uniquely, you can can imagine the exclamation of the sons, Mom, the oil, it keeps coming. And the mom, quick, bring me another jar. And then, when the provision was made, when what was given was sufficient, then it stopped flowing. And brothers and sisters, the oil didn't stop flowing because she and her sons had run out of faith. That's not the message here. God's provision didn't even really require her obedience. But God often supplies the needs of His saints while at the same time building their faith, cultivating their obedience in the process to show that His provision is more than sufficient to meet their exact needs. And that's what they receive. Verse 7, she came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live off of the rest. Not only would their debt be canceled, but they could live comfortably, securely, because God stepped in to be their kinsman redeemer. We're reminded of the providential care of God over our lives as well, that God, because He is almighty, can meet all of our needs. We're reminded that because He is our Heavenly Father, He desires to meet our needs. He comes to us as our Redeemer, as our provider, and He meets our needs in the exact time, in the exact way that we need them to be met. And so we see His goodness and His perfect provision in our lives as well. But finally, we we notice the Redeemer's promise here. After this event, it would have been impossible to keep this miracle a secret. After all, the widow had to go back to her neighbors and return the vessels, to return the jars, and no doubt she would have had to give an explanation. Why did you need all those jars? And with rejoicing and faith, she would have recounted all that God had done for her and her sons. And so this miracle was not just for the widow and her sons. 
This miracle was for the people of Israel. This miracle was a powerful teaching illustration for God's people Israel. In fact, it was nothing short of a call to conversion. Because as they heard about God stepping in to provide for this widow, they should have been cut to the heart with guilt in realizing that they had failed to obey God's law and provide for this widow and her, her sons. Those who heard about this, this event, this miracle, should have been pricked in their conscience, recalling Israel's covenant unfaithfulness, its idolatry. But it was at the same time, this miracle, a marvelous testimony to God's covenant faithfulness. It was a testimony to Israel that God remained a provider and an upholder. God was the kinsman redeemer for all of His people who feared Him according to His Word. And so as they heard this woman recount the wonderful deeds of God on her behalf, they should have realized, the people of Israel should have realized that they also lived and were sustained only by the grace and the mercy of their covenant-keeping God. They should have been reminded of the promise given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of their descendants that should they repent and turn once again to God, their kinsman redeemer, they too, like the widow and her sons, would enjoy the riches of life in His covenant. They would enjoy the promised blessing of His mercy, specifically through the coming redeemer who would Himself pay the immense debt of their sin, the debt of their covenant unfaithfulness. We see then that this miracle of the widow's provision, it, it promises, it prefigures, it, it foreshadows the work of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of Israel's hope. Israel needed to learn that it was the coming Messiah who was their Redeemer and our Lord Jesus. We now look back upon the cross and we recognize Him as, as our Redeemer. We realize that we, like the widow, lived in a state of destitution. We lived in a state of spiritual poverty. We had a mortgage on our souls, a debt that we could not pay. But our provider God, our kinsman redeemer, has come, and He's paid it by sending His own Son as a ransom for our souls. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is the guarantee of a better covenant by offering Himself as a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And brothers and sisters, the joyous thing that we recall is that by the shedding of His blood, Jesus has secured immeasurable riches for us even the riches of an inheritance of a redeemed and restored new heavens and earth where we will dwell with Him forever. Or we will sing the new songs of redemption. And so this evening, praise God for Jesus Christ, your kinsman, Redeemer. And if God is that, if God is your Redeemer in Jesus Christ, if He has rescued you from spiritual bondage and decay, for what else can we count on Him? What's the comfort? What's the encouragement that we can take from this passage? I want to conclude this sermon with just, just four points this evening. What knowledge and comfort must we draw from this passage, from knowing God as our kinsman, Redeemer, and Jesus? First of all, this. 
that God cares for the needs of His people, whether great or small. We are told in Ephesians 2.18 that through the blood of Jesus, what do we have? We have access in one spirit to the Father so that you can bring your troubles to Him, you can bring your anxieties and your trials before Him, and you will meet there at His throne great mercy. Our Lord Jesus in Matthew 6, 25-33 reminds us that we can cast our anxieties, our worries, our fears upon Him because He cares for us. He cares for us so much more than the, the most grandeur of uh, items of His creation. The greatest of His creation are still less valuable than us, and so He will meet your need. God cares for you. If you feel you are anonymous and small and insignificant, God loves you and He is caring for you, meeting your needs even this moment. Secondly, what knowledge and comfort must we draw from this passage? It's this, that our weakness, our lack of resources, our want is an opportunity for God's power and strength to shine. God often brings us through trials, through periods of need, through periods of want. Why? To prove the sufficiency of His grace for us. I think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 8 through 10. The Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, in my lack of resources, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then he says, I am content, I'm satisfied with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am strong in Jesus Christ because God's power and strength shine in the midst of our weaknesses and lack of resources. Third, what is the knowledge and comfort that we can draw from this, this account of the widow and her sons? Third, that God chooses to build our faith through weakness. He chooses to build our faith through weakness. As I said earlier, sometimes the, the mysterious providence of God aggravates us. Um, we find His mysterious will difficult to swallow. Faithfulness doesn't result in immediate blessing, it would seem, and we, we wonder about that. But we are not called here in this passage simply to believe harder in order to receive more. That's, again, the false gospel of prosperity and faith healing. God doesn't even require perfect faith. He doesn't require perfect obedience in order to meet our needs. But it is nevertheless the case that God often does work through our neediness and through His provision to exercise our faith, to build our faith, to grow our trust in Him rather than to circumvent uh, our faith. One commentator puts it this way, God tends to pull us into the process. He makes us participants rather than mere spectators. 
And when God provides, whether in a routine, ordinary way or in a spectacular way, He frequently designs not merely to meet our needs, but to build our faith, to spark our obedience in the process. That's the kind of God that we serve. And finally, in the fourth point here, what is um, the knowledge and comfort that we receive from this passage? That if we are the forgiven, we must also be forgiving. The forgiveness, the canceling of the widow's financial debt here in this passage illustrates a very important spiritual principle for all of us. Since we owe to God so much thanks and service to Him for His forgiveness of us, we should never withhold the mercy and forgiveness from others. Let us never be like the wicked and the unforgiving servant of Matthew 18, who though he had been shown immeasurable mercy and canceling of his impossible debt, refused to forgive his brother from the heart. If we are the forgiven, we must also be the forgiving. Saints of God, we rejoice this evening that by the miracle of God's grace in Jesus Christ, God has delivered us from spiritual bondage, from a debt we could not pay. The curse of sin, the trials of life threatened to enslave all of us, but through Christ we are freed from the bondage of slavery, and we receive from our faithful Lord as much as we have learned to expect as we believe in His Word. We know Him on the pages of Scripture as our kinsman redeemer, our daily provider who knows exactly how to meet our needs in the right measure and in the perfect time. And so believe, brothers and sisters, believe that when you place your trust in the Lord, when you plead for His mercy, when you pour out your complaints and your trials before Him, He knows your way. He is your refuge. He is your portion in the land of the living. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that you are our kinsman redeemer through our Lord Jesus Christ. That as we cry out to you and confess the, the fears and the anxieties and the troubles that beset us, that you make provision for our need. When we are at wit's end, when we do not know what step to take, when we're running on empty, you work out of our lack of resources to prove your perfect power and strength. We thank you for the example that you have given us through the, the life and the miraculous event in the life of the, the widow and her two sons. We thank you that we too um, can expect from your hand all that we need to meet our needs both now and for the future. So, Lord, help us like the widow to respond in faith and trust, to listen to your word, to heed your word, but also to know that ultimately you are our provider, our kinsman redeemer through Jesus Christ, that when we fail to trust you, when we fail and give in to the anxiety and aggravation of this life, 
that still you have provided our Lord Jesus Christ, who is always standing there on behalf of His perfect righteousness to meet all of our spiritual needs. We thank you for Him, and we give praise to you for Him. Bless us all, O Lord, in these coming weeks in which we are no doubt uncertain about what life will look like. We pray that you would protect us, that you would protect our members, that you would grant us peace and patience and grace to deal with these trials that you've sent into our lives. We pray that you would bring relief, uh, but ultimately bring glory to your holy name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.